0: Hey there, everybody. Welcome to Realty Speak, the podcast where experts share valuable insights, answer questions, and tell some real-world stories that'll get you thinking about how you can tweak your real estate investment strategy to build up revenue, realize higher returns, and retain more profit when you sell. Without further ado, here is yours truly, Bill Widener, and this episode's guests... On this glorious fall day in October, here at the Realty Speak Homebase Studio, I welcome back Michael Nukatola, who appeared in the summer of 2018 on Episode 9, Big Project Construction Perils. And joining Michael is a new guest, becoming part of the Realty Speak family, Matt Cotter. Today, Michael, Matt, and I will talk to you about what every insured should know so that they can ensure that they are actually insured. Welcome back, Michael and Matt. Thanks for joining us today on Realty Speak.
1: Bill, really excited to be back on the show again, talking about the most exciting topic in real estate, insurance. Bill, happy to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: Michael, coming back on the show again, you are the principal owner of Nukatola Development, a firm that provides a full array of integrated consulting services to mitigate the risks inherent in real estate positions. You consult for the interests of real estate owners, investors, and lending institutions. I understand that you started out swinging a hammer and then worked your way up to an engineering degree at Cooper Union, followed by an MBA at the University of Michigan. Tell us about that and how you landed where you are today. I have a really
1: unusual background in that I started off as an apprentice carpenter and went on to engineering school to eventually be a doctor. The events at 9-11 changed the landscape here in New York, and I decided to dedicate myself to the real estate industry. I worked initially for a general contractor and then subcontractors and eventually for private equity firms, and along the way, attended the University of Michigan, got my MBA, and then started my own firm, helping other organizations navigate through the challenges associated with the real estate industry. And Matt, you are a vice president at
0: BNC insurance and risk advisors and a New York construction specialist there. You have been with BNC for eight years and you have your graduate degree in education and also participated in track and field during your undergrad studies. Tell us about how you finally chose to be a consultant broker and risk advisor in the construction industry when you started out in education.
2: And track and field. Yeah, I had a, uh, a windy road to get to where I am right now in the insurance world. I had a great track experience at St. John's University. When I, when I graduated St. John's, first went into the supply chain world, starting with the UPS and a couple other logistics companies. My role throughout that time, it was sales, but it was very much a consultative sale, helping companies save money and, and do things more efficiently in the supply chain world. Did that for eight years. And was introduced to a friend of a friend who owned an insurance agency. We had a total misconception of what each of us did. He, every time he saw me, he thought I was, he, I'd be in a suit because I was in sales. And he'd say, Well, you know, why aren't you in your brown uniform? And I'd say, I'm not a driver. And I automatically thought insurance, I thought he sold life insurance. And until one day we actually sat down and really understood what we did, I had an appointment with a supplier. And he also had an appointment with a supplier and he said, what, do you deliver to them? And I said, no, I'm, I'm in sales. And he says, we finally started to understand that we both had this consultative role. I was consulting on the supply chain and he was consulting on the risk management and the insurance and kind of had this aha moment. And he said, I would love to have you come work for me. Took all my, my tests and licensing and made the decision to, to start fresh, to start new and Really, the, the, the day-to-day of helping business owners is no different than what I was doing before. Now the focus is, is helping on the risk management and the business insurance and have been, I'm in year nine now at B&C. We have a, we have a great team there. Our overwhelming niche is New York construction. Over 70% of our clients are either developers, uh, general contractors, or trade contractors.
0: Well, for both of you, kind of a windy road to get to where you are today, but both great professionals. I know personally that what it is that you do, you do very well. Realty speak fans, this is one of those episodes that will, without a doubt, have you knowing what questions to ask that maybe you have not been asking when it comes to insurance and therefore exposing yourself to much more business and personal risk that you would otherwise avoid if you knew what questions to ask. So listeners, you are in for some great insights today. Don't miss a minute. Well, let's get started. So guys, why is insurance, especially insurance that covers the policyholder for high-risk situations, like those in construction or multifamily buildings or retail buildings or office buildings, why is that so complicated?
1: Well, there's a lot of case law involved in trying to decide who's going to cover what types of claims, and when you're running a construction project, you're typically looking at somewhere between ten to 15,000 pages of insurance documents that you need to review for any given construction project, regardless of the size. And it may exceed that number in cases where you have very large projects.
0: Well, it just seems like there are just so many different types of policies. Auto, general liability, workers' comp, umbrella environmental. What kind of policies does everybody need when we're talking about a construction project or an existing asset in place that might have construction done in it? What kind of policies are we talking about?
2: There are a lot of policies and it's kind of evolved over time as insurance companies have an intention of covering one thing and then they inadvertently cover something else. They tend to add endorsements to tighten up those policies to exclude things. And then, and then all of a sudden, there was a pollution policy or just that you, you need additional limits. On these larger projects, it's, it's mandated down from the top that over a certain number of stories, you're going to need more excess limits. So it's the general liability policy. It's the umbrella or excess policies. It's the pollution policies. The hottest policies right now are EPLI, which is Employment Practices Liability cyber liability. You can't turn on the news without some news story breaking where some company is losing a lot of money because they didn't have the right coverage. And that extends over to, to real estate as well. In real estate, we have
0: construction sites on new development on vacant land. We have the renovation of existing buildings And then we have assets in place where there might be some construction work going on right outside the building or in the lobby or in some of the apartments. Do the policies
2: change based on these different needs and uses? Yes. For example, if a developer is putting up a a brand new building, probably the two most important policies there is a project-specific general liability policy layered up with excess over that, as well as a builder's risk policy, which is the equivalent of a property coverage. If your building is just sitting there, you have property coverage. If a a building is going up, you need a builder's risk policy.
0: So what you're saying is that if the building is going up, it is going to be different than an existing building policy. But if you have an existing building policy
2: and there's going to be construction going on, you're going to have to have some add-ons for that? Potentially, depending on how big the project is. Example we were talking about earlier, Sometimes these formerly A-class buildings that were built in the 30s that are no longer A-class buildings are are being converted from a commercial building into a condo. So if it's a big enough project, even though it's an interior renovation, it would still need a project-specific policy on it. When you say project-specific, what does that mean? That means that it is underwritten for that specific project. If I'm a self-performing developer... And when you say uh, self-performing, what do you mean by that? So self-performing, I mean that you are not hiring a general contractor. You're acting as your own general You're contractor? acting as your own which, general contractor. Which
0: I know con- a lot of developers do because they want to have control over the subcontractors. Mm-hmm. And Michael, maybe you want to speak a little bit to
1: that before Matt explains the project-specific policy. We think the internal construction team is one of the best strategies that a developer can execute. The problem is especially in this market where everyone is so busy, it is often challenging for newer developers or smaller developers to attract talent from other firms when they don't have a pipeline of projects. They may be doing a one-off project. They want to self-perform. They can't find anyone to build it for them. They're forced to turn to a construction manager or a general contractor in that case. Or they may be able to reach out to someone like myself who can help them navigate through that process where we don't rely on their pipeline for business we have our own that we, that we utilize.
0: So could you give me an example of that with one of your particular projects that you worked on? And again, explain to everybody, you are a project consultant. Is that correct? We do a lot of different things.
1: At the heart of it, we are real estate project management consultants, and there are a few services that we do not provide. Often clients come to us and we typically deal with small to mid-sized projects, anywhere from the $10 million to $50 million range is our most typical project. Clients are unable to attract top-tier project managers away from the likes of the very large developers out there or very large contractors. They can, however, approach someone like our firm and say, we need help building this project. We do not have the expertise, but we need someone with 20 plus years experience to run this kind of project. We'll then step in, put together a team for the project, and either act as a construction manager or just in a consulting capacity, depending on the needs of the client and their budget and the size of the project and a number of other factors that come into play.
0: Matt, let's say a developer comes to you and they are either speaking to you directly or they've asked someone like Michael to come and talk with you. What's the next step for you and that individual in terms of how do we choose the right insurance and explains the
2: project-specific policy? Well, to have a, a really in-depth conversation in terms of what their goals are, determining what their buying criteria is. What's the buying criteria. The buying criteria would be what's the solution that they need? If they're a self-performing developer, they're going to have options on a project some of the benefits to a, a project specific as opposed to what they call their practice policy, which is just their annual policy that renews every single year. Project specific, if you have a project that's going to go on for two years, it's underwritten for that specific risk, for that specific project. There's no surprises to the underwriter. So they give you a rate and that rate is locked in for a two-year project. On, on an annual policy, if you have some losses in the beginning of the project. Come the renewal of the next one, the underwriter sees those losses and you're going to pay more at renewal. Where on a project specific, if you have some losses, it's not going to affect that policy. That policy is insulated from your practice policy. So there's not going to be an increase mid project. When there's an increase mid project, that's taken right out of the developer's profits. If that's not calculated in it hurts. Also, to
1: add on to that, often construction projects get delayed and they have problems, and those project-specific policies can be extended. Many underwriters are willing to provide an extension if your project runs six months beyond there or eight months. I think it gets tricky once you ask for multiple extensions, but that can make a tremendous difference because, again, it helps you to, to lock in that same rate that you're working with.
0: There are so many different combinations of how a development project could work, You could have the landowner that is doing a joint venture with the developer. You could have the developer that's just the builder and maybe getting a development fee but may not have ownership or equity in the project. You have someone who's a professional developer who buys the land first, and this is probably the simplest scenario, buys the land first. He is self-performing the general contracting. He has control over the entire thing. He owns everything. He might have some limited partners in a syndication, but he's still in control of everything and he's building the project. But in the case where you have ownership and liability scattered among many different people, what is the
2: risk transfer totem pole? The risk transfer totem pole is a good way to put it. We live and breathe in that space every single day. The owner's at the top. The owner hires the general contractor. General contractor hires however many subs it takes to do that project. Between each entity, there should be a contract holding harmless. If I'm the owner, I'm going to to have my general contractor sign a hold harmless agreement. If I'm a GC, I'm going to have all my subs sign a hold harmless agreement. If that's not in place, you're asking for trouble. But even if it is in place, you could have the best contract in the world. But if I'm a building owner and I hire a general contractor that has poor insurance, if they have a a subcontractor warranty or height restrictions, or even if the GC's subs has an employee injury exclusion, it doesn't matter how good that contract is. It's useless.
0: So even if the general contractor signs a hold harmless to the owner, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that means that if the general contractor, if they're signing a hold harmless to the owner, then what they're saying is, if I make a mistake, you're not liable. Correct. I'm not holding you liable. It's my liability, and my insurance is covering that. But unless the owner sat down and read the general contractor's insurance policy—that hold
2: harmless—could end up being worthless. There are a lot of contractors in breach of contract right now, without even knowing it. So, what do you do
0: when no one comes to you and says, "Hey, I'm going to do this development project"? I'm not self-performing. I'm going to hire a general contractor. The general contractor obviously is going to hire subcontractors. There's going to be a lot of people on that site for a long period of time. And the owner thinks that because he has all these hold harmless agreements running on down that totem pole, that he is not going to be liable if something goes wrong. And you're saying that if the policies of those people down the totem pole don't cover them for whatever the liability is, it could come right back up the totem pole to the owner. 100%. Yes. So, what do you do? What do you do when an owner comes to you and says,
2: I'm going to be doing this? What's my next step? Vet the policies below. We dig in and we have a great team in house at BNC. We've created a, a formalized program to do specifically that, to vet the subcontractors, to vet the general contractors, to really dig into their policies, and then we provide a scorecard to the developer and really show them, here's where you're vulnerable. Because the developer's biggest vulnerabilities are everyone below them. What deficiencies are, are in those policies? Is there a exclusion that, that's been termed the hammer clause? And what that is, is if I'm a general contractor and I'm hiring subcontractors, obviously example, I, I hire an electrician and the electrician, one of the employees of the electrical contractor falls off of a stepladder. Probably the most common, I think OSHA came out with a statistic that 70% of their fall from height claims are from stepladders. Employee falls, the electrical contractor's workers' compensation makes that employee whole. Lost wages, medical payments, every other state, that's where it ends. However, in New York, there's a law that's been nicknamed scaffold law. It's labor law 240-241. And on any gravity-related claims, any gravity-related injury, so a fall from a height or anything falling from a height onto someone, there's what's called absolute strict liability. It doesn't matter what the injured worker was doing. It doesn't matter if they were intoxicated. It doesn't matter if they were told, do not use that ladder. It's absolute strict liability. The alternative is comparative negligence. Person that could hurt, did they have any responsibility in that? Again, in every other state, it's workers' comp and that's it. But in New York, the injured worker gets in touch with a personal injury attorney and they proceed what's called an, an overaction lawsuit. Workers' compensation makes it impossible for the injured employee to sue his employer. That protects the employer from being sued directly. However, the injured worker can sue the owner and the owner will pass it down stream, risk transfer to the general contractor. The general contractor will then pass it down to the subcontractor. And if there's good risk transfer, meaning that the electrical contractor had the right policy, the electrical contractor is on it and that's the way it's supposed to work. But if they don't have the right coverage, it goes back up to the general contractor.
1: Matt highlights one of the big challenges with the insurance industry is that, number one, you have to be an insurance professional to vet all of these policies, and that's where that thousands upon thousands of pages of reading comes in. You need a team of people to be that are trained to be able to do that and that will do that for you. When you buy insurance from an organization that doesn't offer that service, you're increasing the risk on your project because you have no idea whether the contractors are covered. Unless you have it in-house. You're big enough that you have a risk department that looks
0: at all this stuff.
1: Correct. But brokers are limited by the fact that the developer needs to provide them or the owner needs to provide them all of those policies to look at. They don't actually know who is on site. They don't know the names of the players. They don't know that the subcontractor on site has actually subbed out the job to three other contractors. That's where we come into play. We're there all the time, and we're able to identify these parties and to collect the appropriate insurance documents and vet them or to pass them up to the insurance company if we have additional questions.
0: In addition to the vetting of the actual paperwork, making sure the correct contracts are in place, the correct hold harmless clauses are in place, you also have to be vigilant as to who is showing up on your site because those people may not have been included in your original agreement. Like you said, you have an electrical contractor and you believe that that electrical contractor is bringing on his own crew, but maybe his crew's busy. So now he subs that out to another electrical contractor. That electrical contractor
1: shows up. He's probably got insurance, but you didn't get a chance to look at it. And oftentimes, contractors won't even tell you when they do that. Contractually, they have an obligation to, but say they forget. There really is no penalty other than finding them in breach. And at that point, are you really going to throw the contractor off the job because he was performing, he just forgot to send you the insurance certificate for the subcontractor? I think Matt has a great story about risk
2: on the project. Yes, I was telling Michael before we started about a client that we had a few years ago where there was a claim... So our client was a general contractor and he was notified that he was being brought into a claim from one of his subcontractors. The subcontractor was a demolition contractor and the individual that got injured went to the hospital. They say, "Who were you working for?" and he said the name of the subcontractor. The subcontractor did not have the correct insurance. So our client, the general contractor, again tried to was brought in, and we're talking about risk transfer here. He tried to pass it down to the subcontractor. Subcontractor tried to put it into his insurance company. Insurance company said, that's nice, but you have an employee injury exclusion. We don't cover that. So it goes back up to our client, the general contractor. So he did not have good risk transfer in place. He hired a subcontractor that that did not have good coverage.
0: And so what would have been the strategy for avoiding that happening?
2: To tell your insurance broker, I'm bringing on a new subcontractor and having us vet that subcontractor. So this was not one of the subs that we were notified of. So we'd never were, had the opportunity to vet their policy. But the kicker here is when the general contractor, is his company is paying out the claim, it takes, it takes years for these, for these claims to develop. So it's sitting on what's called loss runs. Loss runs are a report of your claims history, similar to your auto policy. The auto underwriters will go back and look at the history. It's the history of your claims. Here, our client had a mark on his loss runs and so had to pay an inflated premium. At the end of the day, when this was all being, when it was all coming out with the attorneys, it turns out the injured worker was not an employee of the subcontractor. He was literally a random person that walked onto the job site, picked up a broom, climbed up on a Baker scaffold, and fell. He was not an employee.
0: So now all of a sudden there was no liability? Or was there still liability because somebody walked onto the job site even though he wasn't an employee? And by there the was- way, I've got like six more questions <laughs> after this about this.
2: The, the subcontractor had an employee injury exclusion, So even if he was an employee, there's no coverage. So it didn't even matter. So the subcontractor was a
0: demolition contractor. Mm -hmm. And he had an employee coverage exclusion. Correct. So even if the person who walked onto the site was an employee, that person wouldn't have been covered. Correct. But he would have been covered by workman's comp, right? Right. But he can't be covered on the workman's comp because he wasn't an employee, right? Right. So now the risk transfer went up to the general contractor that hired this subcontractor that had an employee who really wasn't an employee walk onto the site and get injured.
2: And the the real kicker here is that it affected his insurance policy in a really negative way because there was a mark on his loss runs. For the time period
0: that this was going on...
2: He paid more.
0: He paid more. Now... What happened in the end? Did he not have to make good on that liability
2: because this person was not actually employed? In the end, the it was taking off it was taken off of the loss runs, but the damage had been done for those two years that he paid more premium.
0: Oh, so the insurance company doesn't refund the excess premium?
2: There
1: was no refund. Really? Oh. I thought insurance companies did that. Did they do that, Michael? Insurance companies do give refunds. If you happen to have a SIP in place, there's often a refund for having no claims on the project, and that refund is substantial. It's often how... Large general contractors turn in additional profit on a project by encouraging the owner to use a CSIP instead of an OSIP. So what a CSIP is, is a contractor-controlled insurance policy. It's sort of a master insurance policy for the entire project. And an OSIP would be an owner-controlled insurance policy. And the difference is who administers the policy. Wait a minute, wait a
0: minute. So now we were just talking about all the, subcontra- the general contractor and all the subcontractors having individual policies that transfer risk, and now you're telling me that the person at the top of the totem pole can have a controlled policy that covers everybody for everything?
1: Yes, but it only works on larger projects. They don't sell these policies for smaller projects.
2: Quantify large project for me. What, what we're seeing in the marketplace right now is for a single project, about $250 million. So these are large projects. You're also able to have a, what's called a, a rolling wrap. Whether it's a CSIP or an OSIP, it's a rolling rep. So you could have smaller projects, still large $50 million projects, but the total would still need to be 250 And it's much lower outside of New York. But in New York, again, because of labor law, it needs to be higher.
0: It sounds to me like
2: before you do anything,
0: like during the planning stage, when you're having your design done with the architect, or maybe you're even thinking about purchasing the project and you're penciling what your costs are going to be, you really need to be talking about insurance. This is not something that should happen later stage. It should happen very, very early stage.
1: It's a significant impact on the pro forma. At the low end, some very large general contractors will pay one5 to 2% as a percentage of the gross dollars on the project for insurance. But that's just the general contractor. You still have additional insurance costs beyond that for subcontractors, for the owner, for their builder's risk policy. And before you know it, you are shelling out millions and millions of dollars for insurance. Insurance, unlike your project costs, have to be paid up front in a lump sum to the insurance company. Insurance companies don't really like payment plans very much.
0: What about some of these other terms that I'm hearing in the insurance industry?
2: Admitted carriers versus non-admitted carriers is one of them. Easiest way to think about that, and probably the most important piece between admitted and non-admitted, is a state admitted carrier is backed by the state insolvency fund. So if the carrier goes belly up for whatever reason, they've had a lot of losses or mismanagement of funds, if they're a state admitted carrier, they're backed by the state. A non-admitted carrier is not. They go out insolvent and you still have claims that need to get paid out to you, you're out of luck.
0: That means that if I have a project in New York and I'm using a New York admitted carrier, then I have some additional protection because of the state solvency fund. And would I be
2: paying less premium for a non-admitted carrier? Not necessarily. But that's something that has to be checked. It has to be checked. But what I would say is in the New York marketplace in, in real estate and construction, there are a lot of policies out there that are not admitted And that's not necessarily a terrible thing. Much more important is the the coverage form itself. And what does that mean, the coverage form? The coverage form is the guts of the policy. What exclusions are or restrictions are there? I've heard something called a residential exclusion. So the forms and endorsement page of a policy is like the the contents of a book. It lists the chapters, but you're not going to know what the actual endorsement or exclusion says until you read the chapter. So it's just a line item that might say residential exclusion. But when you read that chapter of the book or the policy, you see that this particular carrier is okay with residential buildings that are fire-resistive buildings, but they're not okay with residential buildings that are wood frame, or they're okay with residential buildings meaning apartment buildings, but they're not okay with residential buildings when it's a condominium. And then the biggest reason why there's a a problem with condominiums versus an apartment is the class action lawsuit. So if there's a construction defect claim in every single unit of a 600 unit building, and it's a condo, you have 600 claims coming at you, where if it's one owner, if if I'm a landlord of a building, it's one claim so it's you know exponentially more of a claim payout and so the the carriers will put on restrictions on residential that's probably one of the biggest endorsements that ne- that needs to be read very carefully
0: and just because residential exclusion is in the table of contents doesn't necessarily mean that this, that, or the other thing is excluded. You just got to read it and understand what it says and see whether it's appropriate for your particular project or building.
1: Correct. And those exclusions get very creative. Um, oftentimes, I see roofers that have exterior exclusions, which means they can't work outside, which makes me wonder how they're able to, le- to install roofing and have insurance coverage.
0: you have any stories around that?
1: The story is vetting it. The story is that we vet these people to prevent these problems from happening. We would never allow someone to work on a site with that kind of an exclusion as a roofer. They just would have no coverage at all. And it goes a step further. When we talk about admitted versus non-admitted carriers, and I'm not sure if Matt's even allowed to keep this kind of a list anymore, but we certainly keep a list of insurance companies that are not acceptable even if you buy insurance from them, either because they have a history of not paying claims or they're not well capitalized, to handle a sufficiently
2: large claim that may come up on a project, we would not accept them as a carrier.
0: Matt, do you keep a list like that?
2: We have a list of carriers that have coverage gaps that put the general contractors or or, or, any, or any contractor or developer or owner at risk.
0: What happens when a carrier finds out that they're on one of these lists? Is there something they can do about it to correct the problem? or pretty much on that list.
2: I think the carriers, they know if they have an employee injury exclusion. It's no surprise if they see their name on a list. I mean, from my perspective,
1: we typically are excluding carriers that are smaller simply because if they had multiple claims that they had to pay out and they weren't able to pay a large claim on our project, that would be a problem. And we don't need to take that risk when we can hire someone who has insurance from a different carrier. A couple
0: of other terms that I heard were... Vertical exhaustion and horizontal exhaustion. Now, I know when I'm exhausted, I usually get into a horizontal position and go to sleep. What is vertical exhaustion and horizontal exhaustion in the insurance world? It can
1: often be compared to reading insurance documents. That's when you get vertically exhausted. The two topics are, are quite interesting in the state of New York. Every state has a different policy on vertical or horizontal exhaustion. And basically what this means is the order of policies that have to pay out when there is a claim is different depending on whether you have vertical or horizontal exhaustion. New York is one of those states where it's even more convoluted because the case law reads that New York is a horizontal exhaustion state unless the contract dictates that you have vertical exhaustion applying to that project. Whether that applies to the underlying insurance policy beneath that, whether the carrier will uphold that, is questionable and depends on the, on the carrier. But the difference between one or the other—here's a, here's a real example for you. If you have a subcontractor who has a million-dollar general liability policy and a $10 million umbrella, the GC has the same, the owner has the same. I have a $5 million claim. When I have horizontal exhaustion, the way that claim gets paid out is the subcontractor's general liability pays a million dollars, the general contractor's policy pays a million dollars, the owner's general liability policy pays a million dollars, and it goes back to the subcontractor's umbrella for the last two million dollars. So as an owner, I would hate that because it means that for basically every claim over two million dollars, my policy is going to get hit. When you have vertical exhaustion... All the other policies get exhausted before it comes to the owner, which means that I actually have $22 million of insurance coverage before my policy gets hit. So vertical exhaustion is better than horizontal exhaustion. For an owner. For a contractor, I think it's the opposite because I would much rather my umbrella policy not get hit and my client's policy get hit.
0: But if you're consulting uh, as a broker, Matt, or you're consulting, Michael, as a project
1: consultant you're more concerned with your owner. Well, if I'm consulting for the owner, I am concerned with them, and I'm going to encourage them to, particularly in the state of New York, to write into the contract that we want vertical exhaustion on the insurance policies because New York is one of those states where it's complicated. But every state, the law is different. And Matt, you're working with
0: contractors, subcontractors, and owners.
2: Correct. And vertical is the standard. Vertical is really what we want. For example, even a subcontractor if a claim ends up going horizontal exhaustion, you just really burned your relationship with your client. Client's not going to hire you again. So the, the standard really is vertical exhaustion. That's ideal. And again, like Michael said, it needs to be written into the contract with primary non-contributory wording, and it needs to be written in on the umbrella. Both need to work together quick little break here realty speak fans we cover so many topics
0: on the show there's plenty of great information and strategies that you can use but sometimes you may need more than that therefore i'm here to personally help you when you have more questions around buying or holding or selling your valuable apartment building real estate Every transaction is different, and so are the people involved. A successful outcome will depend on the execution, proper planning. With decades in the industry, in the areas of brokerage, construction, debt capital, and appraisal, I can professionally guide you at any point in the cycle of acquisition, your existing portfolio, or the sale of your multifamily and multifamily mixed-use real estate call me. It's just that easy. To get the information, you need to know when you need to know it. Now. The number? It's 917-232-8529. What else can I say? Real estate is in my DNA. And now back to the show. There's been a few situations where I was the recipient of the COI which is the certificate of insurance that a general contractor or a subcontractor or a specific trade contractor would have to present in order to do work on a specific site or in a building, whether it be retail, office, residential? And there's really not a lot of information on those. It pretty much just says, uh, you know, you have 1 million, 3 million, or 2 million, 5 million. And what what does all that mean? And I mean, could there be certificates that pretty much say the same thing, but have different policies? Absolutely, Bill.
2: The certificates tell you virtually nothing. They tell you the, the carrier, the policy number, which may or may not be correct. It may even be last year's policy number. And they tell you the limits. If you really put them side by side, they don't even need to be side by side exact comparisons. You could have a certificate of insurance that shows 1 million, 2 million, meaning 1 million per occurrence, 2 million general aggregate, with a $10 million umbrella on this hand. And you have a certificate that has only 1 million, 2 million for the general liability with no excess. So someone not in the insurance industry might think automatically, well, the one with 10 million is much better. That couldn't be further from the truth. You really still have to look at the policies. If the better policy is the one, two, that is the better, more protective policy. So should the user of the certificate ask
0: a professional like you as a broker, if you happen to be their insurance broker, and they're getting a certificate from a subcontractor? Or Michael, in your case, where you're doing project consultation for somebody, should one of you be looking at the actual policy so that you can guide the client as to whether or not this is adequate insurance for what it is they're
2: having done? Absolutely. You really need to dig into the policy itself. There's, there's no way around it in this day and age. In very rare circumstances where we look at a certificate of insurance and say, this is good to go.
0: And then the other thing that I've seen happen is sometimes that certificate of insurance is provided by the insured, so so to speak, the uh, contractor uh, or the work person, whatever it happens to be. W- would you recommend that people make sure that they actually get that certificate of insurance from the insurance agent to make sure that it came directly from the company that is insuring? the contractor
2: yeah i think that's certainly a, a good practice to get it from the broker i have heard stories of fraud where a certificate is completely faked and handed to the the general contractor or to the owner and there wasn't coverage in place at all so what would happen in a case like that like let's say let's say someone did that all right you had an
0: owner of a building has someone come in to do work on it and the contractor was not insured and something happens. Now what happens?
1: What would happen is the contractor would effectively have no insurance, and the risk transfer would fail, and the owner would have to pay for the claim. They would hit their insurance policy. If their insurance policy gets exhausted as a result of a large claim, then the balance would have to come out of their pocket. All right. So there's a lot of risk there. They got to make sure that they have a
0: authentic certificate of insurance, number one. And number two, They should be asking for a copy of the whole policy or certain parts of the policy.
1: We make contractors provide us with a complete copy of the policy with the premiums redacted. That way we know that we're getting every page in there, nothing's being excluded, and we'll go through the whole policy to see if there's anything that would concern us. Sounds like good advice. Well, I've been told by Realty Speak
0: listeners that they love the stories they hear on Realty Speak, and I would imagine in the insurance
1: industry, you guys have some pretty good stories. There are some amazing stories in the insurance industry, and some of the things that happen are are really hard to believe, but they do happen. The last time I was on the show, we talked about adjoining properties and what happens when you're doing foundation work, and say the building next door starts to sink. There's a real-life example of this where, you know, Gilbane TDX was involved in a project and they were working on a foundation and the adjacent properties began to sink. During the insurance claim process, Gilbane TDX was not covered by the contractor's insurance despite being added as an additional insured. This was litigated and it went all the way up through the New York Court of Appeals and the reason for this was a single word in the several hundred page insurance policy where the form they were using for the initial insured said with whom whereas the current form that we use in the business says from whom and it was determined as a result that they would not be covered and they had to pay an enormous amount of money out of pocket to cover that claim. How much did they have to pay? We think the number is close to a hundred million dollars but it has not been publicly revealed.
0: With should have been from so because it was with it cost them,
2: we're thinking of a hundred million dollars. Yes. So Bill, Michael mentioned in his story additional insureds. I was kind of wondering about that. So what additional insureds means is that the entity that's that's asking to be additional insured is added onto the policy as a covered entity only to the extent of negligence that arises out of the contractor.
0: Let me see if I understand this. Because I've seen a lot of certificates of insurance where There's this whole list of additional insured. And I always always wondered how they were protected. And so based on what you just told me, if, let's say, an electrical contractor has his certificate of insurance, he's listed the management company, for instance, as additional insured. And there's a claim against the contractor because the contractor was negligent. The additional insured, the management company in this case, in this scenario, is insured under the contractor's policy up to the extent of the contractor's negligence. negligence, Correct. But they're really not insured for anything else. Right. And you would really have to exhaust the entire transfer of risk totem pole before you even got to the additional insured. Is that correct? That's correct. Yep. Glad you clarified that because I was kind of wondering about that. And Michael, before we started, you were telling me this other story. I mean, it's funny, but it's really not funny.
1: Tell the speak listeners what happened. The story is, years ago, we were working on a project that had a demolition contractor. Part of his scope of work was to cut holes in the floor. The floor was concrete, and so the way the contractor does this, they spray paint the hole, hand someone a a saw, and that person will go out and cut through the floor. Unfortunately, this individual decided to cut the floor around him, and then when he was finished cutting the hole, he presumably fell through to the floor below. Oh my God, did he get hurt? Yes, He was injured. The injuries were not substantial. Well, thank God for that. But there was still a claim associated with this, and the workers' comp had to pay out, and so did the labor law claim that came through. The labor law claim was much more substantial than the workers' comp claim.
2: Yeah, and Michael's story really illustrates the the standard of absolute liability. So again, clearly in, in that story, really no one was at fault other than the worker who cut a hole around himself, but in the courts, that's completely inadmissible. It's not looked at at all. So
0: in other words, he he could have been intoxicated or just not, you know, not paying attention or exhausted from being overtired, and yet because he cut a hole around himself and he fell through the floor as a result of his own negligence, the insurance still has to pay out because of the labor law. And talk a little bit about labor law because
2: I understand that it's it's just indicative to New York. So Bill, we kind of joke that you could have a worker on roller skates, on scaffolding, and it's still absolute liability. So it doesn't matter what the individual was doing. It's absolute strict liability as opposed to comparative negligence. That's the crux of New York Labor Law 240 The law has been around since the late 1800s. I believe it was the same year that the Statue of Liberty came to New York that the law was put in place, and it had a real place to protect workers. People were getting hurt. It was when the skyline was starting to to go up in in Manhattan and people were getting hurt and there was no workers' compensation. There was no OSHA and that was the remedy. So as years progressed, OSHA came, workers' compensation came and there were similar laws in in other states and those laws have, have gone away in those other states. But New York is holding strong and it comes down to there is an extremely strong lobby in Albany. There is, there's been a lot of push to amend the standard to comparative negligence. But every time there's a real push, the push back is stronger. And right now, it's really uh, almost like a, a game of two on two. It's a personal injury attorney lobby and the, the labor force, the unions, versus the, the actual contractor owners and the insurance industry. Obviously, the premiums are much higher because of this law. It, it's so high, though, it's actually it's literally putting people out of business. So our, our firm, we see labor laws claims a lot. Uh, the largest claim that our firm has seen actually wasn't even a contractor. We've talked a lot about contractors here. I think a lot of your listeners are probably perhaps building owners or property managers. Our, our largest claim that we saw was a building owner who hired a contractor to paint the fire escape outside. The painting contractor then went in and hired some day laborers, and they painted the fire escape. One of the employees fell, was injured, and again, it goes back to risk transfer. A claim w- was put in place. It was an overaction claim, so it went right up to the owner. The owner said, okay, well, this isn't my guy. I, I hired a painting contractor that had insurance, so let me pass it down to the painting contractor. Passes it down. The painting contractor tries to give it to his carrier, and the carrier says, well, that's nice, but you don't have coverage for employee injury. So it went right back up to the owner. The theme of what we've been talking about here today really is risk transfer, and and it, it hurts, and the, really the only, only way to protect it, again, is to go back and look into the policies and, and read the forms and endorsements.
0: These are examples of absolute liability and comparative negligence?
2: Yes, Comparative negligence is where the courts will take into consideration the individual who cut a hole around himself and, and look at that and say, well, no, that wasn't 100% the building owner's fault or the contractor's fault. There was some responsibility in the person with the saw cutting a hole around himself. So because of labor law 240 and
0: 241, the idea of comparative negligence is out the window.
2: It is out in the New window. York. In, in New, New York. In New York, it is out the window, and that's one of the big pushes. That actually, every every year they have uh, up in Albany, they call it Lobby Day, and a lot of the construction associations and a lot of the owners go up, and the the response that we receive in Albany is, you know, one of the things that we say is this: this is affecting jobs. Uh, the companies are going out of business, and. The folks in Albany say, well, last time I was in Manhattan, I looked up, I saw cranes everywhere. It looks like there's plenty of work going on. And I think where they're really going to start to feel it is when eventually there will be a dip. And that's when the the pinch is going to hurt. That's when they're going to realize that it is affecting everyone. The larger developers and contractors, they're feeling it, but they have the volume to overcome it. But the smaller ones are in real pain. It appears that based on what you just described, we
0: have some laws that are antiquated and maybe don't make sense anymore. And then we also have a lot of things that are changing. Different industries are being disrupted. There's a lot of new technology. There's a lot of new perspectives on how work should be done. There's a lot of automation. And I have one, let's get creative and how do we disrupt the industry question If you woke up tomorrow morning and something in the insurance industry had changed forever, what do you wish that would be?
1: Bill, I think everybody answers this question the same way in New York. We would love to see the scaffold law, local law 240, 241, to be amended in New York. All right. Well, everybody says that, Michael. So what's the creative wish? I would love to see more transparency in the insurance policies themselves. If there were some sort of summary that would identify exclusions or hammer clauses or areas of concern in the policy so that not only contractors but also owners could more easily determine whether the insurance coverage was appropriate without having to resort to reading through a 500-page policy. You think that's ever going to happen? We're seeing some of that. There are genuine attempts being made on a state-by-state basis, but I do not think that there is a great solution in place right now.
0: Matt, what would you like to see change
1: forever?
2: Well, Bill, my first reaction is, is what Michael said to amend scaffold law, uh, label law Two Forty 240, Two Forty One. but you asked me to be creative. So uh, what I would love to see is a different standard, perhaps a, a different licensing or accreditation or certificate to be a tr- true insurance advisor to the real estate and construction industry. It's a different level of advisement. It's a different level of, of knowledge. And a more generalist broker just does not have that knowledge,
0: so then what both of you would like to see change forever number one is the is an amendment to labor law two forty 240 and two forty one and then Michael, you said that you would like to see some kind of summary that people can look at and understand what the actual coverage is in the policy, like maybe on the certificate of insurance in addition to the information that it gives. It summarizes on an addendum exactly what's covered, what the exclusions are to the point where you don't have to read the whole policy. And then, Matt, you're saying that there should be some kind of an accreditation for people that are going to handle this complicated type of insurance. Until we have all those things, and I hope the people that have the ability to make some of these changes or people that can lobby some of these changes are listening and will go ahead and do so. But in the meantime, I'm just going to say to the listeners that I hope everything that you heard here today is going to help you ask more questions because that's what I find is the missing link sometimes when you're involved in a transaction or you're involved in a project is that you take a lot of what's given to you at face value and you don't ask more questions. So every time you're doing something, don't say, oh, okay, this looks good. Say, what other questions do I need to ask? What other questions? And certainly on today's episode with Michael and Matt, I think there are a lot of questions that are probably additional in your mind. And you might want to ask one of them or both of them. And so, guys, how would our listeners
1: get in touch with you? Easiest way to get in touch with me is to find my contact information on our company webpage at Nucatola.com. That's N-U-C-A-T-O-L-A.com or to email me at Michael at Nucatola.com.
2: And Matt, how would the listeners get in touch with you? Best way to get in touch with me would be email as well. Email address is m. C O T T E R M C-O-T-T-E-R, at at bncagency.com, or through LinkedIn. You can reach me on LinkedIn. I'm on LinkedIn against Matt Cotter. Great. And listeners, I'm going to put all that in the show notes. You don't necessarily have to jot it
0: down. Just look on your podcast app or on the website, and you'll see it in the show notes. Well, guys, that was spectacular. Thanks so much. Really appreciate you being here today.
2: Bill, thank you for having me on the show again bill i had a lot of fun that was my first podcast i really appreciate the opportunity
0: well there you have it everyone thank you for listening and i look forward to you joining me for the next episode of realty speak the podcast please subscribe you can do so right on the player just choose your favorite platform like itunes or google play music or search for us on your favorite podcast app like Podcast Republic, my fave on Android devices, or Apple Podcasts for iPhone. And now, there is an email subscription opt-in on the top of the episode page on the website. And please, share our show with others. Just choose share on the player, choose your preferred social media platform, and click. And of course, you can always get all the episodes and contact me directly via the website at BillWidener.com. That's B-I-L-L-W-E-I-D-N-E-R dot com. And remember, it's not about us, but how we help you make the bottom line rise. Until next time.